Hello, and welcome to this special programme for Cambridge 105, giving you a taste of Christmas in Victorian Cambridge. I'm Sean Lang. I teach history at Anglia Ruskin University, and I'm here with my good friends Sandra Burney and Alan Hay to take you through some of the ways in which our Victorian predecessors marked this festive season. Thanks to Dickens, who else, we still associate Christmas with Victorian times, with top hats and coaching inns and snow on wooden window frames. And if, like me, you're one of those who is instinctively suspicious of cosy images from the past, then a quick look through Cambridge newspapers from the time suggests that the Victorians did try, at any rate, to live up to their later reputation for festive revelry and all-round good cheer. This jaunty little ditty appeared in the Cambridge Chronicle and Journal on Saturday the 26th of December, 1846. Hurrah for old Christmas! Hurrah for old Christmas, the beauty and jolly! Hurrah for old Christmas, the friend of us all! who laughs at the frowns of grim-faced melancholy and comes with transport to great and to small. Up, up, let us drink to the yokund old fellow. Though wrinkled his brow and his locks silver-grey, yet his footstep is light, and his heart it is mellow, as any that joins in our banquet today. Then pluck from the mistletoe, pluck from the holly, the red with the white in a chaplet appear. While we banish dull care, which to cherish is folly, and drink to old Christmas, the king of the year. Hurrah for old Christmas! Again fill the chalice. Be first and be foremost to raise the glad shout, when hope lights the cottage and mirth fills the palace. The song and the carol should never ring out. For sorrow and care... For sorrow and care are twin sisters of pleasure. They rest in her bosom, they walk in her train, and permitted to taste, they will empty the measure. The brightest tomorrow shall ne'er fill again. Then pluck from the mistletoe, pluck from the holly, the red with the white in chaplet appear. Let us drive away care, which to cherish is folly, and drink to old Christmas, the king of the year. Second take, this time trying not to pop or... Um, top out. Hurrah for old Christmas! Uh-huh, start again. Hurrah for old Christmas! Hurrah for old Christmas, the beauty and jolly. Hurrah for old Christmas, the friend of us all, who laughs at the frowns of grim-faced melancholy and comes with transport to great and to small. Up, up, let us drink to the yokund old fellow. Though wrinkled his brow, and his locks silver-grey, yet his footstep is light, and his heart it is mellow, as any that joins in our banquet today. Then pluck from the mistletoe, pluck from the holly, the red with the white in a chaplet appear, while we banish dull care which to cherish is folly, and drink to old Christmas, the king of the year. Hurrah for old Christmas! Again fill the chalice! Be first and be foremost to raise the glad shout. When hope fills the cottage. Again that line. When hope lights the cottage and mirth fills the palace. When hope lights the cottage and mirth fills the palace, the song and the carol should never ring out. For sorrow and care are twin sisters of pleasure. 
they rest in her bosom, they walk in her train, and permitted to taste, they will empty the measure. The brightest tomorrow shall ne'er fill again. Then pluck from the mistletoe, pluck from the holly, the red with the white in chaplet appear. Let us drive away care, which to cherish is folly, and drink to old Christmas, the king of the year. I'll do one more. Hurrah for old Christmas. Hurrah for old Christmas, the beauty and jolly. Hurrah for old Christmas, the friend of us all. Who laughs at the frowns of grim-faced melancholy and comes with transport to great and to small. Up, up, let us drink to the yokand old fellow. Up, up, let us drink to the yokand old fellow. Though wrinkled his brow and his locks silver grey, yet his footstep is light, and his heart it is mellow as any that joins in our banquet today. Then pluck from the mistletoe, pluck from the holly, the red with a white in a chaplet appear, while we banish dull care which to cherish is folly, and drink to old Christmas, the king of the year. Hurrah for old Christmas! Again fill the chalice! Be first and be foremost to raise the glad shout. When hope lights the cottage and mirth fills the palace, the song and the carol should never ring out. For sorrow and care are twin sisters of pleasure. They rest in her bosom, they walk in her train, and permitted to taste, they will empty the measure. The brightest tomorrow shall ne'er fill again. Then pluck from the mistletoe, pluck from the holly. The red with the white in chaplet appear. Let us drive away care, which to cherish is folly, and drink to old Christmas, the king of the year. The Victorians were surprisingly fond of putting their thoughts and feelings into both the verse and the press. Victorian newspapers carried far more poems than newspapers do nowadays. Another type of verse was perhaps the Victorians' most important contribution to Christmas, the Christmas carol, and not Dickens, the ones you sing. The Victorians took their religion very seriously, and if they gave Christmas a thorough makeover, and they did, they also thought carefully about its religious message. Christmas carols are full of meaning that often escapes us today. O Come All Ye Faithful was probably originally an invocation to Jacobite supporters of the Stuart kings, and While Shepherds Watched Their Flocks by Night was for many years the only carol allowed to be sung in church, because its words come directly from the Bible though it was usually sung to the tune of On Il Climant Bartat. Then, in 1848, came these words from Cecil Francis Alexander, which linked the Christmas story with the growing Victorian awareness of the importance of childhood. Once in Royal David City stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother mild. Jesus Christ, her little child. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all, and his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall, with the poor and mean and lowly, lived on earth our Saviour holy. And through all his wondrous childhood he would honour and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay, Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he. 
For he is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness, and he shareth in our gladness. And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love, for that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. And he leads his children on to the place where he is gone, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by we shall see him, but in heaven, set at God's right hand on high, where, like stars, his children crowned, all in white, shall wait around. Of course, children couldn't be expected to spend the festive season being angelic. And to keep them amused, the enterprising shopkeepers of Cambridge had plenty of things to suggest, as this advertisement from the Cambridge Chronicle and Journal of 19th of December 1857 makes clear. Dissolving views for Christmas parties. Miss S. Sheldon, having made arrangements with one of the first houses in London for the supply of the above-named pleasing entertainments for a limited period during the Christmas holidays, is prepared to receive applications for the same. A competent person will attend to take charge the apparatus and give descriptions of the views, of which there will be an extensive collection. A powerful musical box will also accompany the apparatus. A large assortment of Christmas presents, ornaments for Christmas trees, etc., etc., just received. A great variety of traced and stamped muslin for embroidery, applique clothwork, etc. Work boxes, writing desks, French jewellery, brushes and combs. Every description of English and German toys, puzzles, games, etc. Three, St Mary's Passage. Cambridge. But of course, the principal entertainment of Christmas, then as now, consisted of gorging yourself in a big meal. And in 1859, Mr W. Palmer, butcher of Petty Curie, was on hand with all your culinary requirements. If meat is not your thing, you might want to avert your ears. Mr W. Palmer of Petty Curie ranks first upon our record, both for the quantity and quality of his meat. During the week, his shop has been a perfect picture, and at night, when the gas jets shed their light upon huge sides of beef and streaky, unctuous ribs, it was a sight that would melt the heart of the most rigid vegetarian. Scores of passers-by stopped and feasted their eyes on the appetite-provoking sight. Mr Palmer has this year killed 21 bullocks, including three polled Scots fed by himself, whose average weight were 80 stones and one weighing over 100 stones. These four, which were purchased at Barnet Fair, were exhibited at the Corn Exchange on Saturday and elicited general acuminiums from those who professed to be versed in the characteristics of good beeves. Mr Palmer has also slotted what we might term the prize bullock, being the largest in the town, which reaches the great weight of 112 stone. The animal was grazed on Mr Palmer's farm and his... Fair proportions occupied no small space of the shop that week. If you're not inclined to join with the Chronicle's admiration for Mr Palmer, you might get some satisfaction from this advertisement, which appeared in the same newspaper a few weeks later. A ghost! A Christmas ghost! 
and New Year Sprite called Indigestion will not fail to haunt those who at this festive season indulge too freely in the good things so bountifully set forth. But this ghost can be laid, this sprite destroyed, by Paige Woodcock's wind pills. Indigestion cannot exist where these pills are taken. Their efficacy is unapproachable, their virtues unbounded, and for all derangements of the stomach, bowels and liver are unrivalled. Sold by all the principal vendors in the kingdom, in boxes at one shilling and a penny halfpenny, two shillings and ninepence, and four shillings and sixpence, or free by post for fourteen, thirty-three, or fifty-four stamps, from Page D. Woodcock, M.P.S. Lincoln. Do another tick. A ghost, a Christmas ghost, a New Year sprite called indigestion will not fail to haunt those who at this festive season indulge too freely in the good things so bountifully set forth. But this ghost can be laid, this sprite destroyed, by Paige Woodcock's wind pills. Indigestion cannot exist where these pills are taken. Their efficacy is unapproachable, their virtues unbounded, and for all derangements of the stomach, bowels, and liver are unrivaled. Sold by all the principal vendors in the kingdom in boxes at one shilling and a penny halfpenny, two shillings and ninepence, and four shillings and sixpence, or free by post for fourteen, thirty-three, or fifty-four stamps. From Page D. Woodcock, MPS Lincoln. MPS Lincoln. A ghost, a Christmas ghost, a New Year sprite called indigestion will not fail to haunt those who at this festive season indulge too freely in the good things so bountifully set forth. But this ghost can be laid, this sprite destroyed, by Page Woodcock's wind pills. Indigestion cannot exist where these pills are taken. Their efficacy is unapproachable, their virtues unbounded and for all derangements of the stomach, bowels, and liver are unrivalled. Sold by all the principal vendors in the kingdom, in boxes at one shilling and a penny halfpenny, two shillings and ninepence, and four shillings and sixpence, or free by post for fourteen, thirty-three, or fifty-four stamps, from Page D. Woodcock, MPS, Lincoln. Page D. Woodcock, MPS, Lincoln. Of course, all this talk of overeating was all very fine if you could afford it. But Christmas was also a time when the Victorians were uncomfortably aware of the plight of those who couldn't feast at Christmas, or at any other time. As the Cambridge Independent Press put it in 1846. At this holy and festive season, amidst our gratitude to heaven for the comforts of this life, which we enjoy more than at any other period of the year, is usual not to forget the miseries of our suffering poor. The pleasures of the rich man's table will be greatly enhanced with the recollection that out of the means which spread the generous board, some poor family has been made even temporarily happy. To rich and poor, and to all our readers alike, we wish many a happy Christmas. Certainly the luxuries of the rich provided some work for the poor, 
and saved them from the sort of starvation that was ravaging Ireland the year that editorial appeared. Of course, the churches of Victorian Cambridge did undertake charitable work, and it was duly reported in the local papers. Here's the Cambridge Independent Press at Christmas 1859. St Mary the Great. On St Thomas's Day, to the poor of the parish and the inmates of Jacknet's almhouses, 224 loaves of bread, 147 hundredweight of coal. The poor widows residing in the parish and the inmates of the almshouses have been supplied with some of Mr Palmer's prime beef for their Christmas dinner by the Reverend H.C. Taylor, their late respected incumbent, the church wardens, and Mr Hattersley. Holy Trinity, on Wednesday last, the church wardens of this parish issued tickets for bread and coals when 271 families of the poorer parishioners were relieved. The number of loaves distributed on this occasion was 696 and 283 hundredweight of coal, which at this inclement season must have been found very acceptable. St Clement, on the 21st, Lambert Damp's charity of coal and bread was distributed among the poor of this parish. We understand that it is the intention of the vicar, the Reverend O.T. Thorpe, to entertain the elder females of the parish to tea, and, on another occasion, the young women will be similarly entertained. Lucky old Mr Thorpe. The plight of the inmates of Victorian workhouses was the subject of one of the best-known Victorian recitation ballads by George Robert Sims. It is called, quite simply, In the Workhouse. It is Christmas Day in the workhouse, and the cold bare walls are bright, with garlands of green and holly, and the place is a pleasant sight. For with clean-washed hands and faces, in a long and hungry line, the paupers sit at the table, for this is the hour they dine. And the guardians and their ladies, although the wind is east, have come in their furs and wrappers to watch their charges feast, to smile and be condescending, put pudding on pauper plates, to be hosts at the workhouse banquet they've paid for with the rates. Oh, the paupers are meek and lowly with their thank ye kindly, mums. So long as they fill their stomachs, what matter it whence it comes? But one of the old men mutters, and pushes his plate aside. Great God, he says, but it chokes me, for this is the day that she died. But the pauper sat for a moment, then rose mid silence grim, for the others had ceased to chatter, and trembled in every limb. He looked at the guardian's ladies, then eyeing their lords, he said, O oh, ye eat not the food of villains, whose hands are foul and red, whose victims cry for vengeance from their dark unhallowed graves. He's drunk, said the workhouse master, or else he's mad and raves. Not drunk nor mad, cried the pauper, but only a haunted beast, who torn by the hounds and mangled, declines the vulture's feast. I care not a curse for the guardians, and I won't be dragged away. Just let me have the fit out. It is only on Christmas Day that the black past comes to goad me. 
and prey on my burning brain. I'll tell you the rest in a whisper. I swear I won't shout again. Keep your hands off me, curse you. Hear me right out to the end. You come here to see our paupers, the season of Christmas spend. You come here to watch the feeding as they watch the captured beast. Here's why a penniless pauper spits on your paltry feast. Do you think I will take your bounty and let you smile and think you're doing a noble action where the parishes meet and drink? Where is my wife, you traitors? The poor old wife you slew. Just by the God above me, my Nance was killed by you. Last winter, my wife lay dying, starved in a filthy den. I had never been to the parish. I came to the parish then. I swallowed my pride in coming, for ere the ruin came, I held my head up as a trader, and I bore a spotless name. I came to the parish, craving bread for a starving wife, bread for the woman who'd loved me through fifty years of life. And what do you think they told me, mocking my awful grief, that the house was up to us, but they wouldn't give out relief? I slunk through the filthy alley. It was a cold, raw Christmas Eve, and the baker's shops were open, tempting a man to thieve. But I clenched my fists together, holding my head awry. So I came to her empty-handed, and mournfully told her why. I told her the house was open. She had heard the ways of that, for her bloodless cheeks went crimson, and up in her rags she sat, crying, Bide the Christmas here, John. We've never had one apart. I think I can bear the hunger. The other would break my heart. All through that eve I watched her, holding her hand in mine, praying the Lord and weeping till my lips were salt as brine. I asked her once if she hungered, and as she answered no, the moon shone in at the window, set in a wreath of snow. Then the room was bathed in glory, and I saw in my darling's eyes the faraway look of wonder that comes when the spirit flies. And her lips were parched and parted, and her reason came and went, for she raved of her home in Devon, where our happiest years were spent. And the accents, long forgotten, came back to the tongue once more, she talked like the country lassie I wooed by the Devon shore then she rose to the feet trembled I'll start that verse again and the accents long forgotten came back to the tongue once more for she talked like the country lassie I wooed by the Devon shore then she rose to her feet and trembled and fell on the rags and moaned and give me a crust, I'm famished.
for the love of God, she groaned. I rushed from the room like a madman and flew to the workhouse gate, crying, food for a dying woman. And the answer came, too late. They drove me away with curses. And I fought with a dog in the street and tore from the mongrel's clutches a crust he was trying to eat. Back through the filthy byways. Back through the trampled slush. Up to the crazy garret, wrapped in an awful hush. My heart sank down at the threshold and I paused with a sudden thrill. For there, in the silvery moonlight, my Nance lay cold and still. Up to the blackened ceiling the sunken eyes were cast, and I knew on those lips all bloodness. Start that verse again. Up to the blackened ceiling the sunken eyes were cast, I knew on those lips all bloodless my name had been the last. She called for her absent husband. Oh God, but had I known. Had called in vain and in anguish. Had died in that den. Alone. Yes, there, in a land of plenty. Lay a loving woman, dead. Cruelly starved and murdered. For a loaf of the parish bread. At yonder gate last Christmas, I craved for a human life. You, who would feed us paupers, what of my murdered wife? There, get you gone to your dinners. Don't mind me in the least. Think of the happy paupers eating your Christmas feast. And when you recount their blessings, in your smug parochial way, Say what you did for me too, only last Christmas Day. From Sandra, Alan and me, a very Merry Christmas.